In this episode, I had the opportunity to speak with New York Times bestselling author regarding her book, Fair Play, A Game-Changing Solution for When You Have Too Much to Do and More Life to Live, Eve Rodsky. Key points addressed were Eve's personal and professional background that led her to researching and writing her book. And then we turned to unpacking core tenets of Fair Game, the book, as well as the axiomatic truths that Eve discovered and documented during its construction. We wrapped everything up with what is on the horizon for her future research and endeavors. Stay tuned for my riveting interview with Eve Rodsky. Hi, my name is Patricia Kathleen, and this podcast series contains interviews I conduct with women, female-identified, and non-binary individuals regarding their professional stories and personal narrative. This podcast is designed to hold a space for all individuals to learn from their counterparts regardless of age, status, or industry. We aim to contribute to the evolving global dialogue surrounding underrepresented figures in all industries across the USA and abroad. If you're enjoying this podcast, be sure to check out our subsequent series that dive deep into specific areas such as vegan life, fasting, and roundtable topics. They can be found via our website, patriciacathleen.com, where you can also join our newsletter. You can also subscribe to all of our series on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, and YouTube. Thanks for listening. Now let's start the conversation. I am your host, Patricia, and today I'm sitting down with Eve Rodsky. She is a New York Times bestselling author. You can find out more about her and her book on their website. It is fairplaylife.com. That is F-A-I-R-P-L-A-Y-L-I-F-E.com. Welcome, Eve. So nice to be here with you. Absolutely. I'm so excited to climb into your book. I feel like you don't need a lot of introduction. You've had a lot of PR and press for anyone who Googles you, but I'm excited because you're all mine for the next 30 minutes and I get to ask <laughs> the questions. For everyone listening, we're going to do, I'm going to do a quick roadmap so you can know the trajectory of where we're headed throughout this interview today. And then I'll read a quick bio on Eve before I start peppering her with questions. We'll first look at um, your academic background and early professional life leading up to writing the book. And then we'll dive right into unpacking um, fair play, which is a, a game-changing solution for when you have too much to do and more life to live. Um, and it's a, a fascinating book. It's got a, a lot of really core tenants that's received a lot of attention. And I believe that it actually offers really unique skill sets and um, a perspective that is to date unpublished. And so I'm really excited to talk about the groundbreaking work there. And then we'll turn to our efforts towards looking at um, goals and advice and any changes that have taken place over um, the past few months, given the recent state of um, global affairs for Eve and all of her future endeavors. Quick bio as promised. In her New York Times bestselling book, Fair Play, A Game-Changing Solution for When You Have Too Much to Do and More Life to Live, Eve Rodsky applies her expertise in organizational management to a problem closer to home, a system for couples seeking balance, efficiency, and peace in their home. So Eve, I am, I'm excited. Your background is exciting to me because I think it sets up an unlikely but perfect recipe for um, what you've created in your book. And I'm hoping that you can offer um, uh, our audience the, an academic background and early professional life prior to writing Fair Play. Absolutely. Um, so I, I'd like to say that this is a book I was born to write. 
Um, Fair Play was a book I was born to write, but I'll talk a little bit about my background. I grew up um, in the Lower East Side of Manhattan on Avenue C and 14th Street. Um, and that's important because um, we ended up there because my father left my mother when she was pregnant with my brother. So I was three, they were living in Virginia at the time, even though we're, she's from Brooklyn, but we came home. Um, my mother was a single mother to a three-year-old and a zero you know, baby, a very newborn baby. Yeah. Um, and that was very disruptive. And I think about my daughter now who's three and I can't imagine having that type of disruption in your life. Um, so that was how we ended up in New York City on Avenue C and 14th Street. And um, I think a lot of people would call me a parental child uh, because at seven years old, I remember this big chemical bank checkbook uh, that was, I think, a precursor to Chase or something, but it was called Chemical Bank. And around seven years old, my mother would work late. Uh, she was trying to get, get a professorship at Hunter, which is a CUNY, uh, a public school in New York. And uh, she's a social worker. So we we're living on her social worker's salary. And um, she would work late. So I would put my brother to sleep, who he has some disabilities. Um, and then eviction notices started coming under our door. And I remember waiting up late for my mother um, with a blue notice, you know, mm. like we're not gonna have somewhere to live. Um, and then she would just look at me and just say, you know, I'm sorry, I just forgot to pay our rent this month. So I think looking at myself as a parental child, somebody who was very, became obsessed with systems yeah. and organizational management um, and how do you manage your life really early is sort of the lens that I look at the whole world through. and. I think the reason why I say this is a book is I was born to write was because at that age at seven, when I was writing out the checks for my mother and learning how to help her pay her bills, um, I was also vowing to myself that I would never have my dad as a partner. So even though I loved my father and I didn't want people to call him, you know, deadbeat or not to be with us, um, I did love him. I wanted an equal partner in life. I wanted something different for me. And um, I did, I married that equal partner. That's nice. the crazy irony. I married him and things felt super fair. We would take turns doing laundry and dishes and he really supported my career. Um, after law school, I went into uh, the corporate sector and then started working in philanthropy. He helped me get my dream job in philanthropy by staying up all night, quizzing me with interview questions. Things felt really fair. I'd say, you know, and then cut to, cut to two kids later. Mm. And I find myself literally sobbing on the side of the road over a text my husband sent me. Um, and you know, that's where Fair Play starts, right? The text he yeah. sends me after my second son was born just said, I'm surprised you didn't get blueberries. And it led me on to this realization that I had not had, I was not living um, at 35 at the time uh, the career marriage combo I thought I was going to have. I was not living the life that I'd planned for myself at seven. Right. Um, and I think because I had vowed that I would have an equal partner in life. And on top of that, I'm a Harvard trained attorney and mediator. Um, as you alluded to before, I'm trained to use my voice. Um, I figured that if I was sobbing on the side of the road for being the uh, fulfiller of my husband's smoothie needs, uh, handling every single task for my family at the time after my second son was born. That's why I was crying over that text. 
um, I figured it was probably happening to other women. And that really was um, what led me on an eight year journey to really understand what I call in fair play, the default or the she fault. Mm -hmm. um, but other people have called the mental load, the second shift, um, emotional labor, or as Sheryl Sandberg calls it now in this crisis, the, uh, the second second shift. Oh, that's cute. Yeah, I am. Um, I like it. I think that a lot of people have come at this dichotomy. Your book sets this up kind of beautifully. You um, you have a, a, a study done in 1969 and you contrast that with a, a study done where you, you garner these sentiments from people um, about the division of the household labor and you, you kind of, you know, ask yourself, which one do you think, which time period do you think that that information was gleaned from? And um, it is daunting because, so in my view, it's, it's since my, you know, my grandmother's time in the 40s, I felt like it was starting to be unearthed, you know, with the first wave of, or the second wave of feminism after obtaining the right to vote. This analysis of, you know, of division of household labor and the roles in household, and as those things changed with the socioeconomic, macroeconomic influencers. But what I love is that um, you immediately kind of define the paradigm, and then you begin to unpack it so as to create action items moving forward, you know, and the entire book is, um, uh, kind of a double entendre because it's this game, you know, the, or it's it's this metaphor. You metaphor, literally have yes. a game, this card game that you um, enact if you are, you know, executing your system. And what I love about that is that it gives action items. I don't think that just unpacking it and describing it has ever been enough. And this is where I feel like you begin to set yourself apart. There's been a lot of analysis about relationships from, you know, the, the 80s onward. There was this psychoanalysis movement of looking to the family unit, uh, investigating it, all of those things. But um, I'm curious, you, uh, you first started kind of comparing and contrasting. When you started developing it, because of your love for systems, did you know in the beginning that it was going to be this like tangible card game? Or no. were you just developing no. a book to kind of unpack it? I was not developing anything. I was just curious. I think mm -hmm. that's what was so interesting. I was trying to save my own marriage um, because I think I really thought, um, you know, if my marriage is going to end, it, yeah. it was going to be over my affair with an NFL player, right? Not over <laughs> the fact that my husband is now seeing me as the uh, fulfiller of his smoothie needs um, mm -hmm. while I, you know, am doing 10,000 other things and I'd opted out of the traditional workforce. Um, I put that in quotes because um, subsequently I learned that I did not opt out, right? Society had pushed me out, but um, I had opted out of the traditional workforce. I was, uh, that day I got the blueberries text. You can picture the scene. I had a breast pump and a diaper bag on the passenger seat of my car. I had gifts for a newborn baby to return in the backseat of my car. Um, I had just started my own firm because again, I thought it was somehow easier and more flexible to have my own business. So I had a client contract that was on my lap that I was marking out for a client with a pen that was literally stabbing me in the vagina because I was, I was, I was breaking at every red traffic light. I was like, yeah. this damn pen is here. And then I was racing to get my older son, Zach, at his toddler transition program, which in America, you know, because we value working families and we care about care. Yeah, right. Lasts like five minutes. Mm -hmm. And this is like the scene that's unraveling around me. And, I, and it was, it was almost like the matrix, right? Or was slowing down or the space time continuum collapsing on me, similar to how it is today, where I got this text in all the midst of this crazy day 
um, you know, that I'm surprised you didn't get blueberries. And it just, it literally, it, it was the matrix. I was sort of like dodging this bullet in like slow motion mm -hmm. and I had to pull over. And to me, that was it. That was the day I said, I'm not going to live like this anymore. I'm a game changer in my own marriage. Um, I don't want to get a divorce because I am committed to trying to make my marriage work, seeing um, all of the fallout from my mother's divorce in our, in our life um, and the pain it caused me and especially my brother. So I was really committed to making my marriage work, but I knew I wasn't going to live the way I was living. So it was just a curiosity mm -hmm. of understanding what was happening to me. And so I went down a... Uh, rabbit hole, wormhole, curiosity journey uh, into this idea of the she fault, the mental load, emotional labor. And I guess it turns out, right? And I didn't know this, even I consider myself a quote unquote feminist, but it turns out that women have been talking about the problem for a hundred years. Yeah. Um, like you said, um, right after World War One, uh, into World War Two, with second wave of feminism, third wave, um, and a hundred years since Virginia Woolf said a woman couldn't be Shakespeare because she doesn't have an unencumbered mind, um, that we have too much in our mind. Um, the same exact things, 101 articles, the same exact theme have come out during the pandemic. Um, so I wanted to unpack why, why, and then start thinking about solutions. Um, but yeah. it happened sort of slowly. It was definitely an evolution. It was definitely not something I was thinking about in terms of writing. My day job, I'm a family mediator. I work for families that look like the HBO show Succession. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a very private person. So all this idea of coming on podcasts or setting up an Instagram account or a website with tools um, or writing a book, all those publicly facing things were definitely not in my, um, they were not in my crystal ball yeah. at that time. Well, and I think it's cool to hear that because it seems like it just all came to you in one, you know, cappuccino moment because <laughs> it's what well, the way it's laid out is so cohesive. You know, I was um, daunted as a reader and as an, an old school academic, I don't like to be lost. You know, I lay out roadmaps <laughs> for my podcast. You know, I'm like, here's yes, where we're headed. Yes. Everyone can that. follow. And so um, I wrote I, that I, down, by the way, you're the only person I've ever seen do that. And I think it's such a brilliant tool. I like it as a listener. Yeah. I need to know where you're going. Yeah, exactly. Like you got to say, you know, get someone to sign on. Like, why are you getting them their signature without like showing them the car? Like, no, I love it. Love um, it. Yeah. And I do too. And what, the, and what you do is so perfect because you don't just say, let's, let's look at it like a game. Let's have cards. Let's detach some of the, you know, values that we've erroneously attached to those chores and things like that. What I like is you start like any good game, you get like four golden rules <laughs> you know, and you get into those. And for everyone listening, I kind of want to drop some of those so I don't lose anyone in the rhetoric of it. Um, so, and these are kind of loosely done. I'm not quoting your book directly, or perhaps I, I might be, I'm not sure, but rule number one, um, all time is created equal. And that is um, kind of alluding to the myth that men's time is finite and therefore precious and women's time is infinite and therefore less precious. And rule, um, rule number two is to reclaim your right to be interesting and interested. Rule number three, start where you are now, um, who you are, who you're married to, and what is your intention for playing fair. And rule number four, establish values and standards for being fair. 
So you have these like four tenants, these four rules that kind of like intersperse throughout every aspect that you go into, um, even prior into getting into the game. And I like, I think it's chapter two where you really kind of carve out and define your terms which I think is important in any endeavor, you know, when you're, when you're explaining things. I'm wondering, those four rules, did those come up as you were going through your research? Like, how did you start to come to these, like, holy grail of, like, you know, gospel tenets? Absolutely. Well, that's a great question. Um, thank you for being so thorough in how you lay out the rules. Um, it started as an understanding, my, my favorite article on this early journey was a 1986 article by a sociologist named Arlene Kaplan Daniels. Um, and it was an article called Invisible Work. And what I loved about that term in terms of other terms that had been used for women's second shift, like the mental load or emotional labor, invisible work connoted that there was work being done that may not be seen. Mm -hmm. And so my first step, because I love an Excel spreadsheet, was to do what every other woman has probably done for 100 years. I started to make a list. I started to make a list of everything I did yeah. that was invisible to my partner or my kids. And then I invoked other women to tell me what was on their list that may be invisible to their partners. And then all of a sudden, women I didn't even know were coming up to me or texting me or DMing me on Instagram saying, um, I received your spreadsheet, your shit I do spreadsheet. That's what I called it. Yeah. Um, I received your shit I do spreadsheet from a friend and I, it's really been helpful. I want to help you. Um, I noticed you forgot Elf on the Shelf, you know, one hour times 20 nights. And I was like, oh, okay, that, that's a task that I didn't think about that you may do that's invisible. Um, I didn't see Girl Scout cookies ordering in sales on here. Okay, that's about 10 hours. Um, you don't have sunscreen. Yes, it's only two minutes to apply, but you have to remember there's 30 minutes for the chase. <laughs> you know, so it was this really yeah. funny um, community of women that had received a spreadsheet and it was sort of, I wouldn't say viral in the new, and by the way, going viral is probably a term we should retire now since the pandemic, but um, it wasn't going wide in, in the traditional sense, but it was just, it was going through communities of women. Um, and it was a nine month exercise to get this beautiful, gorgeous 19 million megabyte spreadsheet of 2000 items of invisible work and 98 tabs, if you can picture an Excel spreadsheet. And then one day I decided, you know, to send it off to Seth with um, literally no explanation, just the subject line, can't wait to discuss. Um, and, I love it. I love it. And as you see in the book, right, I mm. just got, I didn't even get the courtesy of the three monkey trio, right? I just got the sad monkey that's covering its eyes. Mm -hmm. And that was the day I realized that everything up to the point that I had learned about making a list, making things visible, it wasn't going to work. So I had a choice. I was at an inflection point to either say, I'm going to resign myself to do it all and lose myself in the process. Or... I could get my ass in gear and become my own client. And so what I decided to do was say, you know what? I work with really highly complex families. I design systems for that family. So even when they have three generations of family members that have been crazy and feuding before I met them, they're communicating with grace and humor and generosity around really complex organizational and financial decisions. And so I sat down to say, if I was going to be my own client, 
and pretend my marriage is a client, what would I design for that marriage? And that's how the four rules started. It started mm -hmm. with unpacking what I would design and then testing it against people that ended up mirroring the US census. So I'd go out and interview four people and then I became obsessed. And then I'd go out and interview another four people. And then all of a sudden I had 20 people in another Excel spreadsheet. And then all of a sudden I had 35 interviews and yeah. then it was 101 interviews and then it kept growing. And then I said, well, I don't want to just talk to white people, right? Or, or a certain type of class. I want to make sure that everybody, you know, all uh, US census groups are represented. Um, and so I started going out and asking, you know, I want to get this, I want to get that. Um, I didn't want to just talk to professional classes. Um, obviously the people that um, I went to Harvard with and Michigan with, right, they're all college educated. Um, obviously I have a friend, I have friends of very beautiful diversity, but um, still maybe not as much economic diversity as I wanted. So I wanted to make sure I identified people who are working poor, um, people who had lost their children to foster care. So it took a long time to get my data set. And I'm only going a little deeper because I never do, but your podcast is letting me do that. Yeah. In terms of how I got to that research, um, that's what took me so long. Um, if I just wanted to talk to right, the people that look like me, like yeah. so many self-help people do, sure. I mean, you can say whatever you yeah. want and espouse what you want, but if you're gonna come out of the academic tradition um, and really have a bibliography that makes sense, and I wanted to be endnotes and then it ended up being a bibliography because the book was too long. I was very rigorous. <laughs> in the research and the going to original sources and not secondary sources. Yeah. But that was um, what took me so long to write Fair Play. And it came out of understanding that we don't treat our home as our most important organization. Mm -hmm. And if I work with organizations and I've been doing systems since seven years old with my chemical bank checkbook, I realized my, my thesis became, what if we start treating our home as our most important organization? with some respect and rigor. Because what I found out was even my Aunt Marion's Mahjong group has more clearly defined expectations in the home. You yeah. don't bring snack twice, you're kicked out of the group. <laughs> but in our homes, we're deciding who's setting the table when we're hangry or we're cranky. Um, we're, we're deciding who's logging onto the school form portal when we're five minutes too late. Nobody knows the Zoom passwords for our kids. Um, we're just, it's so chaotic. There's so much decision fatigue. And it's because ultimately we don't have any systems. We don't treat our home with any respect and with any rigor. Well, and I think that's interesting. I get a tone of that. There's a juxtaposition there. So I get this, you've, you've re-entered this realm of, you know, we have not treated it with the um, sacredness and the seriousness that we would approach, you know, where we're going to lunch tomorrow. Right. And, um, you know, and put as much planning and forethought into like the division of who's, who's invited, who's not, what's happening. But also Correct. there's a, uh, I don't even know if I want to call it playfulness. There's um, there's kind of a, a relaxed surfer mentality when you bring yeah. in the prospect of this game, you know, and, and I know, I believe as your reader, um, you've meant to do it to kind of detach some of the stigma and the years of built um, the, uh, this um, kind of animosity. You have a term for it. You're, it's a barometer that. Um, oh, my resentometer? Resentometer. Yeah, resentometer yes. that builds over time. And I think that in, in order to placate that and silence some of that so that you can get to the real heart of the problem and start developing a solution, you know, I believe that that's where you bring in the game concept. But um, were you nervous at all about doing that? When you did it, it was a tenuous line for me as a reader. I thought, is this getting cheeky? And then it didn't. And the application Absolutely. became so real. Absolutely. Look, I mean, 
I think people um, are not used to thinking of their home. And so a gamification can feel really bizarre, mm -hmm. um, you know, because it is a metaphor, but I'll tell you why I did it because I, I trust me, um, card games are, are your cheaper version of a couple therapists. If you don't want to, you know, do that, like I want to get the therapist over and, you know, develop that relationship over five years, which I'm not saying is a bad thing, but what I found in my mediation practice as a lawyer, as somebody who deals with complex families and often mediates alongside with psychologists um, and mental health professionals um, in my day job, what I've found over a decade is that cards are very, very, very effective tool. And the reason why, and I'll give you an example, in my mediation practice, I was hired by this one family, uh, by the family office. Typically, I, it's usually referrals through the actual patriarchs or matriarchs um, or generational foundations or family businesses that are going through a succession issue. Like I said, very strange career, very niche career. Nobody understood it except for, thank God, for this new HBO show. show. Yeah. So that's been very helpful. So the, in those situations where I've been brought in and I may not have been hired by the original patriarch or matriarch, I had one experience, for example, early on in my career where I went in and um, I was talking to the patriarch about his succession of his family business, a, a huge company, a multi-billion dollar company. Um, and I said, well, you know, I want to talk to you about the succession plan and this is how I work, my roadmap, like you were saying. And um, he said to me, well, I'm not sure why you're here because I'm not going to die. Ever? So, <laughs> Ever. <laughs> is not happening. Yeah. So um, what do you do then, right? I mean, it's a, it reminds me a lot of the conversations we have in the home. Take out the garbage. No, you, you suck at it. You know, I don't need to take out the garbage. Okay, fine. So you're at an impasse. The garbage is not full. doesn't have to go out. You want it to go out. Uh, the laundry's in the dryer. It's getting wrinkled. It doesn't matter if it's getting wrinkled, right? I mean, there's all these like micro fights. And it reminds me of that where when you get to an impasse, a card game is really helpful. So with my mediation clients, I started using cards. And I would say, let's picture your legacy. Does, does it look like a fish? Does it look like the ocean? Does it look like a newspaper? And then I'd have even the most difficult people who couldn't communicate would say things to me, actually, let me pick up that newspaper again and tell you about my first newspaper route. And that's how I became obsessed with media. And I earned my first dollar on my newspaper route. And that's how I bought my first newspaper. And all of a sudden people are opening up and talking. So I find the cards are a great effective mediation tool because it allows you to have a third party and the third party of the cards. It gives you a boundary around a conversation. So instead of saying, oh, you never do laundry because your mother did everything for you and I hate you, it becomes about, no, we're sticking to laundry now. Let's set expectations over who does our laundry in our house. And that's really the beauty of what I've seen when thousands of people now have been playing and reflecting back to me. Yeah. And I think that that's interesting too, as you mentioned reflection, I don't think it's necessarily um, when people think of a game, it's something to win. I think it starts a transformation. And I also think that it's, uh, I've, I've, I can picture people thinking this is just for the person who's doing a lot of the domestic work in the house, but, um, and I, you, a lot of the PR that's come out since you've, you've published is that, um, both partners are finding it same sex marriages, you know, everyone is finding it useful, um, because when there's discord or, um, a rupture in the house, it's affecting both people. It's not just the one that's overly labored, 
with right. an unfair amount of tasks and lists. And I think that unearthing that, um, you know, unionizes everything into a, like a cohesive canal that you can kind of start progress into. And so, and that's what your book did a really good job at conveying this kind of reunification that, as you say, marriage counselors really look for, you know, it's this, like, we got to regroup the team. We can't be right. on it's opposing re- sides. Exactly. It's redefining teamwork. And I think, you know, we often are in a situation where we think we're a team, but um, I'll give you an example of you know, for me, it was the first was the understanding about, let's just talk about garbage for a second. So I'm showing you the garbage card, yeah. right? I, um, when I was unpacking the system, when I became my own client, I immediately, like you said, went to organizational management. Um, that plus the gender division of labor can be dry as hell. So that's why I use a lot of storytelling and some humor because this can be yeah. dry as hell, which means that you will not be uh, investing in your relationship. So I wanted it to be really fun. Um, and so the, my goal was that you could read this book in a day. Um, but the garbage card, when you think about it. So I understood that I wanted to bring organizational management principles into the game. So the first principle, the first concepts really became about this idea of owning your shit, mm-hmm. right? You don't walk into your boss's office and say, what am I going to be doing today? I'll just wait here what you, to, to tell me what to do, right? Um, Apple calls it the directly responsible individual, the DRI. Uh, Netflix calls it the rare responsible person where you don't wait to be told what to do. The 21st century employee is somebody who takes ownership. And so I knew I wanted to bring that in. So, and Seth does that for his employees too. And it was this idea that, okay, I'm gonna own garbage. So Seth and I talked about what does that look like? I call it the conception, planning and execution in my book. Mm-hmm. Um, so he said, yes, okay, I get it. It's thinking about the garbage day. It's not having you remind me when the bins have to go out. It's putting the liner back in. So he understood that concept of fair play. And that's really, it's a no brainer. It's harder than you think to adopt because we're so used to the inefficiencies of splitting up tasks. Like you wash the dishes and then I stack them in the dishwasher. Like, no, no, own the full task for one day and then you redeal. Yeah. That's how you do it work. So he got that. But I was still his garbage shadow. So that's where, the, as you were saying, how did I develop the system? Yeah. Something was missing. And so in the early days, I was like, but I know this works for the, for the office. Like, what am I missing? Because I couldn't stop following him around the kitchen. And I'd open doors and he would fall over the garbage, the, like the open door because he's tall. I'd be like, ooh, well, since you tripped, you might as well be on the floor and get a garbage liner. Right? I just, yeah. I couldn't let go. And he knew it. And it was, it was a lot of tension still. And that's when I realized, okay, I've been working on values-based mediation for a decade and I'm not using any of my values. So that's why the crucial, most important step of fair play that I now see is important for everybody, not just me and Seth, is starting with your why. Mm-hmm. And taking a new vow. I don't care what you said on your wedding day and you probably don't remember it, but I'm asking you to take a new vow over garbage by starting with why you care about it. So when I sat Seth down and said, I skipped a step, I appreciate you owning garbage and trying this out with me, but I'm apologizing for being your garbage shadow. And here's why. What you don't know about me, even though you do know I grew up in a divorced household, you know my brother's disabled, you know my mom worked nights, you actually don't know that I often put my brother to bed and he would ask for water. And when he asked for water, I was afraid to go into the kitchen because if you turn on the light in my, my kitchen, there'd be just hundreds of cockroaches and water bugs that would just scatter right away. Um, 
because there was garbage left everywhere. We didn't ha have a garbage can. We would just have a takeout bag on a knob that would fall over onto the floor. And so I said, Seth, I don't think I ever never told you I didn't have a garbage can. But when I see a garbage peel or a banana peel sticking out over our garbage can, yes, it triggers me. I'm seven again. I'm putting yeah. my disabled brother to bed. We're alone. We're waiting for my mother to come home. I don't want to go back there. And then Seth was able to say to me, well, um, that's interesting, but I grew up with a housekeeper. Um, I slept on Domino's pizza boxes in my fraternity. Like I really don't give a shit about garbage. Yeah. So what happens when you're so divergent over something that has to get done every single day? Well, 30% of us are divorcing over these small details. But I'm here to say that if you can have those why conversations, we came up with in Fair Plays, you, um, you know, because you've unpacked it so beautifully, um, there is a part which is rule four about establishing your values and standards. And part of that is coming up with a minimum standard of care for your family. Um, and that's where we ended up. So Seth and I did our why, and we ultimately said, he said, I'm not gonna take out the garbage every hour. That can't, doesn't work for me especially on weekends. But what I will do, our minimum standard of care is I will take it out once a day. Mm -hmm. It'll go out before you go to bed. I promise you that. You will not have cockroaches and water bugs because the garbage will go out once a day. I'll put it in my calendar like a work appointment as long as you never freaking mention the word garbage ever again. <laughs> but it was a miracle. It was the first time in my life, actually, in our, my relationship over a decade where there was accountability and trust over the invisible work in my home. It was like Moses parting the Red Sea. Mm -hmm. And that's the day where I realized that I was onto something. That if you follow these rules um, in the system about starting with your why and really investing in conversations like you're investing in toilet paper and making communication a practice, uh, there's real transformation. There's real transformation that can happen in your home. Definitely, for both parties. You know, I kept coming back to... Um, I, I believe, um, I like to believe, and I think I am in a healthy relationship and it's, um, it's been, you know, a lot of work and it's been the better part of 15 years. And I think that um, what I kept coming back to is, is what's good for the goose is good for the gander. And that's what's right. lost a lot, you know, and that the concept is, is that I think that we lose, you define a lot of um, inequities and things that, uh, things that are unequal on levels that are, can be very, abrasive, you know, so you have this concept of really evaluating that as a culture, we view and some men view men's time more important, finite, precious, you know, and the work that's done in the home, not priority, not precious, you know, the work that's done out there for career, money earning, and then um, women's work to be infinite. So even if she's earning more money and, and doing things out there, she's got more time so she can get all of those domestic tasks done and things of that nature. And I like it because um, you at once kind of reascribe this value, but it helps everyone involved because you mentioned things like um, fair play isn't 50-50. It's not, you know, equal. Uh, it's, it's people dividing up tasks according to a skill set, um, you know, different moments of time availability, all of those different things. And I think that people don't realize that you've kind of assigned or one in one's household has assigned roles based on unfactual reality 
you know? And so when you come back to those very like dedicated plans and the cards and really looking at it and do we, you know, view your time as much? And if so, why or why not? Is it ascribed to money? You said um, at one point, you know, one of the, the most horrible things that has ever been said in the American society is that time is money. You're like, time is just time. (laughs) Time, Well, I think I love that you're really, you know, I don't get to go deep on this, but I I appreciate you letting me go deep because it is the core finding of fair play. So while the game is based on owning your shift and the idea that there's transformation when you hold a task from conception to planning to execution, um, you're unpacking something really important, which is actually the core finding of fair play, which was not something I thought I was going to find, by the way. Um, I didn't really understand how insidious this idea of us treating society treating men's time like diamonds and women's time as sand was until i heard women say it themselves mm-hmm. so the worst purveyors of what i call these toxic time messages where women guard men's time and heterosexual relationships the worst purveyors of the messages are women yeah and actually when i was um i have lots of you know hundreds of moleskins with crazy, you know, that, you know, analog, that's sort of how I do my, my interviews. But one of the, the most common annotation in terms of looking for patterns in these 500 plus interviews was this notation, and I'm showing it to you on Zoom, but for your listeners, it says C-I-Y-O-O. It kept coming up in my interviews, and that means complicit in your own oppression. And what that was, what when I would say things like, well, why are you the one uh, taking the pediatrician's calls? Um, why, you know, why are you the one c- picking up from school? Why are you the one always disrupting your work day to pick your kid up from school? Why are you the one that's homeschooling your kids right now um, in the pandemic? Why are you the one that's um, in charge of laundry? You know, I would ask all these questions about invisible work and the number one answer was, well, because my husband's job has X. It's more flexible. It's less flexible. He has the insurance. He makes more money than me, mm-hmm. right? It was always guarding their partner's job. And sometimes it was more flexibility he has than that. He can't do it then, but it's less flexibility. Like it was never like one excuse. It was always this idea yeah. of uh, in some way that time is money or my husband's job is more important, even in people in the same job. Uh, two colorectal surgeons, two shipping supervisors still said, I find the time. My husband's better at focusing on one task at a time. So time is not money. That's a terrible argument for women because even the same job, we don't make the same amount of money. Um, and if women enter a male profession, the salary goes down. So we know our, our, our time is not valued on the work side. But on the home front, the other things that were CIYOO, complicit in your own oppression, were when women said to me, um, well, I'm a better multitasker. You know, I have better executive function um, mm. than my partner. Okay, so for that one, I had to go to the top neuro, one of the top neuroscientists in this country. And then um, of course, on the record, he said, no, you know, there's no difference in our executive function and our ability to multitask. But what is, um, we said off the record was very powerful, which was imagine Eve, we can convince, I could convince we as men, could convince you, half the population as women, that you're better at wiping asses and doing dishes. How great for my half of the population. So right. I cried that day. That was another day I cried besides the blueberries day. And then the other very c- 
complicit toxic time message was, well, uh, in the time it takes me to tell him what to do, I might as well just do it myself. Mm-hmm. So for that one, I went to the top behavioral economists in America, my friend Dan Ariely, and I said, well, tell me, if, do you think that's a good argument for women? He said, it's the worst argument ever for women. Of mm-hmm. course, it makes sense to tell someone how to wipe asses and do dishes. Otherwise, you're doing it with your finite time. You may think you can find the time, but I'm here to tell your listeners, unless we're Albert Einstein and we know how to fuck with the space-time continuum, which we don't, sadly, there's actually no way to find time. There's just different expectations over how women are supposed to use our time. And God forbid you're not using it in service of your household or to make money. God forbid that you use it for something like a podcast or to write a book, right? Something that's actually more valuable, I would argue, for society um, than some of these other things, right? Because you're sharing ideas, you're helping other women, you're sharing your beautiful point of view, right? But it's just that we are it's very subversive for women to be able to use time for their own making. Um, we don't like that as a society. No, and I think it's powerful because I think even in the, the, the more optimistic end of that spectrum where you get into someone saying, I'm, I'm better at it, I'll just do it. It's a punishment wrapped in a compliment. It's still <laughs> totally ridiculous. You're still just garnering yourself down. with I more things. That. But um, so good. I I'm wondering- a lot of things you said down because you're giving me- <laughs> punishment wrapped in a compliment that's so good we have this um concept that we get married and if it's going well things are going to be the same and you've cited a bunch of different statistics um over the past year and um you talk about how you know uh, and you're citing i believe another statistic with every child there's 10 to 15 hours accrued um unassigned labor that just comes along of an equity that's you know usually assigned to one person it's not legal like egalitarianly split or anything like that or even talked about it's just assumed Assumed. and that changes uh, any kind of a system you know if you didn't stay in the exact system you had and you didn't hold frozen in time if you morphed and changed i feel like this system comes into play in everyone's relationship if you are not constantly evaluating what are we doing right now what's going on and i don't think anyone goes into love and a romance and you know in this century and thinks well now let's sit down and talk about our roles who's taking out garbage you know and things like that and so it's it feels like it's something that will inevitably come to all of us you know it does and that's what i think especially for your listeners who are younger or or may not be partnered yet don't do what I did because you may think that it's uh, just easier for me to take out the kitty litter. But what happens, either your resentometer, ding, 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 goes to, you know, 10 and then women initiate more divorces than men, or it's going to catch you in your, in your physical health and your mental health. Yeah. Cause even women who said, I am happy being the new superwoman. That's a, a personality profile in my book. I can do it all. Um, the correlation between autoimmune diseases and insomnia and those women were insanely high, um, mm-hmm. almost one-to-one in my, in my data. And, um, and I have more data actually than most sociological studies, even though I'm not yeah. a actual sociologist, but I am an academic and most of my writing before this book was uh, rigorous and in an academic discipline, I was trained that way. Um, so yes, I will say that I'm confident that it will, that the cost of doing it all, thinking that having it all means doing it all, will come to you at some point. Um, If you are a woman in a heterosexual relationship and even in a same-sex relationship, a lot of these toxic time messages of time and money Mm -hmm. were seeping into those relationships as well. Um, 
and causing unfairness. So that is, if you start, if there was one thing that we can take away today, it's this idea that um, all time is diamonds. You just get 24 hours in a day in your partnership and you both should have um, choice over how you use your time. Yeah. Um, that's really what I hope that, um, that's the movement that yeah. I want to be behind for what the next fourth wave of feminism can be um, in America. Me too. And the key word for me is, is definitely choice. It's, you know, choice. The, defining your terms and knowing your choice, you know, and, and reminding yourself that there's choice. Um, I'm a very yeah, the progressive opposite of choice is a default, right? The, op the opposite of choice yes. is the she fault. And so all I want is for women on their spectrum to be not the she fault side of things, but to be on the choice side of things. And that, of course, like you said, requires practice. It requires work. It requires taking a new vow. Mm. Um, my favorite, one of my favorite uh, questions to ask my data set was um, recite your vow, your wedding day vows, and then tell me, I want you to tell me how you live them out this week in your marriage. And most people looked at me like, you know, I'd say every single one of them, everybody, except for maybe people who are married in the past six months, looked at me like I was insane. Yeah. What the hell? Are you, what, what does that question even mean? Right. So let's take a new vow. Take a new vow to discuss garbage and laundry tonight because when you get to your why about the things that have to get done every day, it frees up so much space yeah. for the things that are important to us, which I call in fair play unicorn space. And um, I'm very happy to be speaking with you today because um, of your surfing background and uh, your beautiful podcast. Um, and so that's the stuff, that's the, the meat yeah. of your day, of the beauty of who you, who you uniquely are and how you share that with the world. And I would never want you to stop surfing or stop interviewing. Right. Yeah. And to do that, you need time. That's true, you do. Time in an ocean. Um, <laughs> yeah, I completely concur. I have to say, before I let you go, and I know we're running out of time, I could talk all day long, but I do want to, it begs the question, and I don't know if it, again, is the old academic researcher in me, but, you know, a really good conclusion leads on to, like, and this is what future studies really should be looking at. And when I concluded your book and looked at everything and, and read it over again in my mind, I immediately thought, well, how many other systems, you know, you've applied this in the corporate succession line of family, familial wealth and kingdoms, and you've applied it to the homestead. Have you been tempted um, looking forward? I always tell people, you know, it's like in labor, you're <laughs> asking someone, you know, so you're going to have another one, but I would def I'm definitely going to take the risk and be that person today. But um, I'm wondering have you looked forward to future analyses because you garnered so much data, you know, and if you, if you cross-reference that, have you looked towards applying it to other systems, even in the home? Have you looked to applying it to children, siblings, or yes. other institutions? Oh my God, thank you for asking. So I'm obsessed with this book, How to Raise an Adult mm -hmm. by Julie Lithcott Haynes. Yeah. Um, and so really, if you read that, that along with fair play, you're going to have the best kids ever, right? Because yeah. fair play teaches you how to model and how to raise an adult teach you, teaches you how to, um, to parent. But that's really what um, the next step is. The next real step is, is, is taking all of the stories that are on the uh, cutting room floor. It's why I asked you before about surfing um, and putting that into a, a book I'm writing on now, which is called The Right to be Interesting. And it's really looking at women and what happens when cultural milestones 
don't line up to happiness. Um, when you were told happy, you know, Ariel, Princess Ariel and Little Mermaid, I just watched with my daughter this weekend, is 17. And that's it. She disappears, right? Um, we don't get to see women after they reach those milestones of, yeah. of the diamond ring, the marriage, and maybe we get to see them in their first baby shower. But what happens to the rest of their lives? So I'm really looking at that and all the beautiful story of women and men uh, reclaiming their right to be interesting. Um, like along that. their decades. But in terms of systems, my children have been, um, we have decided that a color-coded homeschool schedule is not going to work for us in the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And instead, we really have leaned into fair play. So in fair play life, you can go on and I say to my kids, I want you to understand what executive function is. It's the thing in your brain that's going to give you success for the rest of your life. And it really starts with understanding a task from start to finish. Mm -hmm. from curiosity to completion. So let's be curious about laundry. How many steps do you think it takes to complete laundry? Yeah. And so we've been playing a quiz where, and now my sons do it. My eight-year-old is holding the laundry cart on the weekends. But before he just thought it was, he would look and say, well, I think you have to fold it. And he would just start folding clothes on the floor. I'm like, no, no, let's break this down into the conception, planning, and execution for laundry. And now he says things to me like, well, you need two oils. You don't even just need one oil. You open the secret drawer, but if you don't use the softening oil, the towels are going to be rough, right? So he's thinking about the details of laundry all the way. And then they, he folded them and left them in the laundry room. And I said, Ben, let's go back to the card. Like you're missing one step. Do you know what it is? And he's like, no, I can't think about it. I'm like, well, let's go and see what that last execution step is that we missed. And he sees that it's putting clothes back. He's like, oh my God, laundry includes putting them back where you found them. I said, yeah, they have a home. So it's really looking at how my children have been embracing fair play in terms of their executive function journey for their brains. It's yeah. been really fun. And they're going to be good humans. Like it's good yes. that you're going to contribute someone to this world that is, you know, has responsibility and a citizenship to the, the world and starting with their home. You'll be um, thank you. And I will say one woman did say this, something provocative to me during COVID, someone who was not anti-fair play, but, you know, a good friend who's just always, um, you know, not doesn't really, be, you know, 100% believe in, in that having it all doesn't mean doing it all. Mm -hmm. And what she said to me was really profound. She said, okay, you finally got me because what I realized is even though I'm okay doing it all, um, I am not actually okay having my son and daughter watch me do it all. Yeah. Mm, so that was really good. profound. Yeah, good on her. I mean, way yeah. to hold your own, but also just think, you know, the next generation can't see it happen. I completely concur. You can agree to something, but allowing your children to witness it, you know, is the first step and maybe re-questioning it yourself. Well, Eve, we are out of time today and it's a bummer because I feel like we could talk all afternoon. Yes. And I want to say thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I know that your book's on Fuego and you're totally busy. Everyone during COVID, particularly um, creatures such as yourself, they're not available. You know, it's, it's their home, but they're busier than ever. And I really appreciate your time and, and speaking with us and my audience today. Oh, I love your audience. And thank you again. Um, this is a really in-depth conversation and I got to go places I don't get to normally go. So thank you for your beautiful questions. Absolutely. It was my pleasure to nerd out on you. For everyone listening, um, we've been speaking with Eve Rodsky. She's a New York Times bestselling author. You can find out more about her life, uh, her book, Fair Play, on her website, fairplaylife.com. And until we speak again next time, remember to stay in love with the world 
and always bet on yourself. Sancha.